So hello, everyone, and welcome back into the MLS Bench Podcast. I am Joey. Uh, with me today is Andres, and we have a very special interview today. We have John Arnold of the Getting CONCACAF Substack, and he's an FC Dallas beat writer for The Striker. He knows so much more about CONCACAF than basically anyone that you find around. And um, the fact that he can help us out with some MLS coverage, too, is, you know, just all, all the more great. And so, John, I'm delighted to have you here. Um, how's it going? Hey, all good. Good to be here. Uh, you reached out a while ago, and I took a long time to get back to your messages. So I'm glad to finally be here hanging out. Yeah, thank you so much. It's you know, it, it is what it is. Um, and glad to have you here now. So I think I'll just start because um, I, I did reach out at the end of a World Cup qualifying when all the craziness was going on, when we still had spots up for grabs. And so I guess I'll just start, you know, with kind of the looming story over the region um, as we head into November. You know, what do you think is if you could single out one CONCACAF storyline kind of thing to watch as we approach the World Cup, what is it? Or do you have kind of multiple that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, part of my coverage is to have this holistic look at the region. So, I mean, I think there are interesting things about all the teams that are going. You know, first of all, I think it shouldn't get overlooked necessarily as a region that CONCACAF got four teams in. You know, Costa Rica took care of New Zealand in the playoff. Uh, that isn't insignificant, right? So that's something that I think is is worth mentioning at the macro level. You know, I think there are, are interesting storylines for all four teams. I think some of the, the groups look pretty difficult. I think that maybe the most interesting story is will Mexico implode? Because the mood in Mexico is not very high. I saw a fan survey just today that I think, you know, 70% say no confidence or very little confidence in Tata Martino. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty significant number. Now you could say, well, that's kind of how Mexico fans are always feeling. But even before the 2018 World Cup, you know, I was at the Estadio Azteca for their send-off game against Scotland when they won but got booed off the pitch and people were chanting Fuera Osorio. A couple of weeks later, they're singing his name after Mexico beats Germany. So just because confidence is low doesn't necessarily mean that things won't go according to plan, that that things will be a disaster. But I do think that, you know, obviously the U.S. fans are excited. I think you guys cover that quite a lot on, on this show. And, and I'm sure the listeners are familiar with kind of the trajectory of the U.S. I feel like if things don't go well this World Cup, 2026 feels like the tournament for that team. But for Mexico, you're looking at Andres Guardado's last World Cup, potentially Guillermo Ochoa's last World Cup. Raul Jimenez probably has one more in him if he can be healthy, but you know potentially his last World Cup. And the next generation, you know, maybe like Irving Lozano, Tecatito Corona, some of those guys have, have come through. But after that, you know, maybe there aren't the players that you would expect for Mexico to be this dominant power in 2026 and 2030. So I think if things go wrong, it could be a real inflection point for Mexico. I'm not so sure that they will go as poorly as everyone is sort of expecting right now in Mexico. But for me, maybe that's the most enticing story of, uh, of Qatar. Yeah. I think, you know, the main question with Mexico is do they get out of the group? And it's, it's a gettable group. I think that they can certainly get out. Do you, what, what would your project, projection be as of now? Yeah, I mean, you look at that group and you say Argentina wins it and Mexico has a chance to finish second. It's just about the, the game with Poland. If they finish second and kind of form holds, they play France in the next round. So 
that's the problem. And that's kind of the curse of the Quinto Partido and the same thing they did in 2018, where they had a pretty good group stage, fell flat at the end, and then ended up playing Brazil. So, you know, like as much as we look, no one loves CONCACAF more than me potentially, but uh, you're not, when you're facing these World Cup favorites to win the tournament, CONCACAF, most of the national teams here and the men's side are still not at that level. So I, I do think, you know, that is still where I see Mexico going hitting exactly the standard that they've hit basically every single World Cup, certainly in your lifetime and, and in mine as well. Um, yeah, I, that's where I think they're going to end up, you know, and I just think that's the most interesting story, you know, with all respect to Costa Rica consistently getting there, grinding it out, you know, kind of this resurgence they've had with respect to Canada, how amazing they were in World Cup qualification there, this generation on the rise. I just think with the other North American teams, that 2026 tournament, at home with games in Canada, with games in the U.S., and with games in Mexico, just looms so large on the horizon where for Mexico, in some ways, this feels like the end of an era where the other countries feel like they're on the up. So to me, that's the difference, and that what, that's what makes Mexico the story. So I, I do think they probably get out of the group. I think the draw was much kinder to them than it was to, for example, Costa Rica, uh, probably to Canada as well. And Maybe so, the USA. And maybe the U.S. They could have they could have the easiest, you know, quote unquote easiest. I don't think any group is easy at the World Cup, but they could have the easiest group of of the Concacaf teams. I might give the U.S. the edge there. I, I don't know that the U.S. is is, is all conquering group either. Um, I think Canada and Costa Rica have much tougher paths. But I, yeah, that that's I think Mexico will get out, and and hopefully other Concacaf teams get out too because uh, it's the region I love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andres, you you're down in Mexico. I'm interested. Can you kind of echo those same you know concerns that you know you you hear your Mexican brethren saying? And do you you know have any questions related to that? No, I think I think John put it put it on the spot with his with his commentary there. Uh, definitely, the mood in general around this uh, selección is is not super high. Um, like you mentioned, not a lot of confidence. Lots of memes going around WhatsApp groups, basically, you know, foreboding not getting past a fourth, a fourth partido, which is you know the the running joke here is that you never get to the fifth game in the World Cup, and and I think it's a good point that he that he makes about kind of this generational shift. For sure, some of the older stars, this is it, uh, but even the 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 Chucky Lozanos, the Tecatito Coronas, they've already had World Cup experience. This isn't like a new group. Uh, like you could say with the U.S., where the majority of the team is coming into their first World Cup, this group has experience. And, you know, you don't see a whole lot of prospects coming through for the next uh, four, eight-year cycles. So if this group doesn't get it doesn't get it done, which there's not a lot of confidence that they will get it done, you struggle to see how it gets better over the next four years. So I think, I think those are, are good points uh, made by John. And it seems what... What is the consensus around here? Yeah. Um, I guess on that you know, topic of youth players coming up through, what are some players that you're looking at? It doesn't have to just be in Mexico and across the region because obviously we saw Costa Rica was buoyed by that youth talent um, and made a resurgence as or because of it. Do you see that you know happening across CONCACAF? Sort of. I think that we're in an interesting point as far as development in the CONCACAF region. I think a lot of countries are doing good things smart things um and you're starting to see these different patterns 
emerge as far as you know how players and this is for i think everywhere you know this is even happening in europe and south america where you know maybe traditionally there was a player who did well at an academy and then gets a first team debut at a young age maybe goes to the big team in the region or the country for a year or two does well and goes to maybe an intermediate league whether it's you know the netherlands or belgium or ukraine for a while um, and then takes this jump to to the top level now you're seeing so many of these mega teams stash players. You know, I think like City Football Group, they, they kind of do it in an elegant way where you have New York City FC winning MLS Cup and you have Montevideo City in Uruguay making the Copa Libertadores and you have the Australian team that's part of City Group winning their league. So it's like it's impressive. And obviously their their scouting machine is, is, is certainly rolling along. Um, but I do think they've sort of changed the paradigm um, when you look at a lot of the players. You know, even a guy like Brandon Aguilera, who U.S. fans might remember from his impressive uh, showing in that March World Cup qualification match in, in San Jose. He signs for Nottingham Forest. They immediately loan him back to Costa Rica. And, and it's just like even Nottingham Forest is dashing players. You know, that that wasn't exactly the the the, the way things were done even even three or four years ago, I would argue. But now... Uh, it just makes sense. And it works out, I think, well for, for some of the players because they're able to keep getting their feet uh, and, and learning from their coaches and, and getting what they need in a lot of places, but also with that understanding that there's better things to come. So uh, that's kind of a macro answer to your question. Aguilera is a guy that I really like. I'm not out on Diego Lainez yet. I think he could be a, a, a player from Mexico. Uh, U.S. fans, of course, will know about Jonathan Gomez at Real Sociedad. I think, uh, you know, a fullback for the future, for sure, um, in a region that it seems like CONCACAF for years and years didn't produce a single good left back. And then all of a sudden we have like 20 different fullbacks who are are playing at top clubs. So that's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there is talent for sure coming through the region. That There are players getting developed. There are going to be guys who are are standing out and starring. Um but I do think it's going to take maybe a little bit of time to sort of like navigate these new waters. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what knock-on effects it has on the international game if players are more concerned about, you know, like a Manfredi Ugalde in Costa Rica who seems to be much more focused on his club future than the national team, partly because of beef with the national team coach. But it'll be fascinating, I think, to see if there are these knock-on effects because uh, I do think the, the kind of the club game is changing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess, and this is something that can kind of tie back in MLS too, because we've seen a few rumors, not super, super credible, but that uh, Hugo Perez, uh, the coach of El Salvador, brought them to, I mean, heights that they haven't been in in quite a while um, in this last World Cup qualifying cycle, despite the fact that they finished, what, second to last, um, that he might be on the move. Do you see him staying through 26? Do you see him moving to MLS? No. What, what do you think his future is? I don't think that he'll be there through 2026. Um, I, I did a newsletter speaking with Ugo and his son, Gerson, uh, I guess a couple of months ago at this point. But um, and this is like not, you know, this is my impression. This is not what they were telling me. But even in the newsletter on the record, they were, they were telling me, you know, like it can be difficult to work in El Salvador. You know, as we're recording this podcast, I think it's been 26 days since there's been soccer uh, official soccer in El Salvador. The league was supposed to start. The government came in, investigated what seems to be actual corruption in the federation, but the government and the federation have been beefing for a very long time. FIFA comes in, they name a regulatory committee that's supposed to restart the league, but it's not happening. 
there's a transfer that I'm going to be writing about soon in the newsletter. Um, a player who went from the Salvadoran top league, a, a very good team or a powerful team in, in El Salvador, and elected to play in a European third division. So um, the state of the game in El Salvador is not great. And and I think it like is, is a lot of times a knock on, you know, people want to se- separate politics and sport. Um, but I think you look at the knock-on effects of the, the difficulties that Salvadoran society has had, that Salvadoran politics has been, um, and you can kind of draw a straight line uh, to a lot of the difficulties, the corruption with officials, the the difficulty in sort of fostering youth talent, whether it be in soccer or music or you know education or whatever it is. They're just there's just these roadblocks. It seems like to success. Um, maybe that's harsh, but that's my impression. All of that to say, I, I just think if Hugo Perez was there till 2026, he'd just be an absolute survivor. And I'm not sure he'd enjoy the experience either. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him in Major League Soccer sooner rather than later. And of course, he did such great work uh, with you know youth clubs as well in, in his native California. So um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him on, on an MLS bench because I don't think the El Salvador, I think he would like the El Salvador project to be long-term. I think other people working in the Federation want to have this project continue because everyone kind of soccer minds see the success and kind of see where it's going. Um, But just because soccer nerds are seeing it and and people in the Federation who are pulling in the right direction are seeing it doesn't mean that it won't be yanked in the other direction uh, at any time. So I think Perez is certainly an MLS coaching candidate, could be as soon as next year. John, I, I had a. It's kind of a follow up on both questions that we that we were just touching on. One is player development, and you've kind of answered it here with with the discussion about the federation and the difficulties of working in El Salvador. And, and I, I'm thinking that it probably extends somewhat to the rest of Central America. Uh, in historically, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, player development has been sort of a centralized uh, type of process where youth players with with potential and experience are kind of brought in into this national team type academy. Uh, we saw it with the U.S. previously in Bradenton. Um, and it seems like since these MLS academies have really taken off and there's so much more um, availability of good coaching, it's really taken off in terms of how many players are coming through academies, getting early opportunities with um, to play professional minutes and, and then getting into, into Europe. Do you see something similar uh, as a possibility to happen in Central America um, and throughout the region? Or is that just a bridge too far to ask for a more decentralized development process? Yeah, I think there are kind of two things that set Central America apart from what MLS has been able to do. One is sort of the economic and political situation where a lot of times the big clubs are the only ones who can sort of offer the resources, the proper nutrition, the gym, the facilities, um, you know, all these different things that the young players need to really be able to compete with with their equivalents of other nationalities. And the coaching, as you mentioned, super important. Um, and you got to pay coaches, right? You have to have good coaches. They have to get coaching education. You know, these are, these are things that are, that are not free. The other thing that I think is a little different is just the size, right? If you're in El Salvador, you know, Honduras is an interesting example because they essentially tried in a, in a lot of ways to replicate the Uruguay model. You know, Uruguay is such an impressive country on a soccer level and, and, and on a political level as well. But, you know, when you look at their soccer, 
it's such a tiny country and yet they punch above their weight you know tab ramos when he when he took the houston dynamo job obviously has a deep connection to uruguay and he noted that the houston metro by itself was essentially the population of uruguay and yet how many players does uruguay produce and put in top top clubs in the world that reaps national team success and how many players have houston produced it's not a great comparison because especially because houston is really underperformed um at the development level, at the academy level. So I think Honduras, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Panama, there's no reason that they couldn't look at this model that Uruguay has developed and do something like that. These centralized camps could work in a way that it didn't for the U.S. And I don't think Honduras would work for Mexico, although they do have the the facility at CAR and and everything where sometimes they do put together youth camps. Um, But I I wonder if the centralized model might actually be more successful if they sort of uh, made it stronger in some of these Central American countries. I think right now, in a lot of ways, the development in Costa Rica, for example, gets farmed out to the three big clubs. They're forming some partnerships with some of the smaller teams, uh, which I think have been productive and fruitful. Uh, but a lot of times I think it does kind of get farmed out to to the the power clubs and and the clubs with money in these countries, where if the federation's we're investing a little bit more in a centralized approach. It could work better. So I think it's just a different situation, but it, it, you know, it is interesting. And I think you've correctly sort of like noted that the path for the U S to have success has become, has been become more decentralized, but I, I wonder if an actual sort of federal top-down approach is best for some of those countries. And they just haven't necessarily uh, done what they need to strengthen the program in the past. It's and when you were when we were talking about youth development, it's I kind of want to ask questions about that, but almost like in comparing it with the U.S., which is what we know in our kind of youth system. You know, you know those systems better than we do. I don't know basically any of that at all. So when when you try and you know put this through the framework of a fan of the United States, it almost feels ridiculous to ask because we're talking about nations of just completely different proportions, different you know. You know, the U.S. system is so rich with money, you know, so many players all over. So it almost feels weird to even make a comparison. How do you deal with that kind of, you know, breaking this stuff down in a, you know, a, a view that needs to be seen by U.S. fans? Because we don't necessarily get a lot of the, the, the trials and tribulations that go on in these, you know, development systems. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's challenges are different, you know, and I think there's obviously parallels between the U.S., Mexico, Canada. You know, there, there are things that those countries have in common with Costa Rica or El Salvador or Honduras. But one of the things about CONCACAF is that, like, there's not, you know, other than geography, and even that is a little sketchy with, you know, Suriname, French Guiana. Like, there's not a lot that really unites us, right? Like, what does the U.S. as a country have in common with Anguilla? And what does El Salvador have in common with Suriname? And what is what does Jamaica have in common with Canada? Right? Like these are, are are different places. I guess you could kind of perform the same exercise in some of the other confederations around the world, but you know, a lot of times it's really different. And I think that the challenges are really different. And you know, speaking with the Kamara David, the the uh, general secretary of the Caribbean football union. He's the president, he's the general secretary. He runs this, this sub region within CONCACAF. And one of his biggest challenges is just to convince people in certain countries, certain Island nations that like girls can play sports. 
like we're in a different place in the U.S. And you see it on the field when the U.S. women's national team wins the World Cup. Uh, but I, I think like it's tough to sort of port over lessons. And that's why I say like, I think the Uruguay model could work for Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala where it doesn't work in the United States and it wouldn't work in Mexico. And you have all these clubs and these people in different regions that are interested in growing the game and in potentially making money off of selling young players to, to big clubs. And that doesn't necessarily exist in other places. And people maybe don't see the pathway to that, which when you look at like population size and economic factors of some of these Caribbean nations, it's totally understandable. Like why no one's ever made it as a professional period in, from Anguilla. Why would they think that they can develop players? So you get some of these guys and that's some of the stories I try and tell, like these guys who are dreaming big or, or, or have these interesting strategies. You know, I think that that can be something that's exciting and something that is important and, and something I try to spotlight because I don't think those stories get told even sometimes in their own country. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it is our region and I, I think we need to learn about it, but also like, it's a totally different situation. I'm so glad you brought up that camera David article. Um, I thought it was really interesting in the CFU, you know, discussion that, you know, when you ask what does the CFU do or what do you need to do, it's basically trying to band them together as one sub-federation, um, even within the Caribbean, you know, Barbados and Dominican Republic or the Bahamas and Cuba. These are totally different cultures coming from, from different European backgrounds. Um, and, and so I, I could see why it's difficult for them to really push all in the same direction at times. So yeah, that, that was a, that was a good shout. And, and I wonder if they also find similar challenges with this Federation top-down um, approach. I wanted to ask about Honduras, uh, and this is a team uh, typically competing for that fourth, fifth spot in, in, the, in the region, um, has shown promise at the youth levels historically, uh, famously beating the U.S. to a couple of Olympic spots. Um, but now it's been... You know, 12 years since that costly Pavon generation, which which made to South, made it to South Africa, they're they're in a bit of a transition period with this Romel Kyoto, uh, Albert Elise type generation. Do you see that generation kind of continuing through for the next type of cycle, or is it time to start moving into a, a different group? Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, you, you name it as the Albert Elise and, and Romel Kyoto kind of generation. I think as you get deeper and deeper, you realize when you're naming talented players who are playing abroad or, or, or playing at a high level, you never name a defensive player. You never really name, you know, maybe even the hardened kind of like hard-nosed midfielder. Herbin Arriaga is kind of starting to fill that role, but like that was a, such a hallmark of, of Honduras's teams that made the World Cup. And I just think that they've lost that steel and haven't necessarily kind of replaced it. You know, their, their back line that they were rolling with for most of World Cup qualification was entirely domestic based. Minor Figueroa, a guy I covered, a guy I really like, uh, but a guy who was about to be 40 was still like a bedrock of the defense. That's not how you get to the World Cup. And it shouldn't be, right? Like, it shouldn't be easy to get to, to World Cup qualification. It'll be easier next time around. And I think you're going to see Honduras with certainly every opportunity to qualify because they do have this history. And the league is, you know, okay um, compared to some of the Central American uh, countries. 
but ultimately like i i think it'd be really difficult to see them making getting back to where they were um they need the new generation to come through and you know elise is going to be there because you know he's a fantastic player just a totally different different level i think as most players right now from honduras but they definitely need that new kind of generation to arrive and um I'm not sure. I, I I think they could be one of the countries that takes a big step back. I mean, they already have, right? Finishing last place like they did in World Cup qualification, that's a step back. And there were kind of no answers after of like, what should we do for, for Nations League? They got some good wins. You know, they beat Curacao, they beat, Hondur- uh, they beat, they beat uh, Canada in Honduras. But um, I'm not sure where they go from here. And the, I think the problem is that they don't know either. Yeah, um, certainly it'll be interesting to see how Honduras kind of manages this next, you know, cycle moving into expanded world cup where, you know, it's a soccer proud country. They would hope to get into a world cup that's expanded by what, 16 spots. So, you know, that there, and without the U S and Mexico and Canada in qualifying. So that'll be crucial to see how they um, manage these next four years. Uh, you know, quick hitters on CONCACAF and then we can quickly move on to Dallas. Um, you know, just a, a real, just one, one, two word answer questions. What, what's the team that you see, you know, up and coming in CONCACAF, maybe threatening for the next octagonal or whatever it will be in 26. And, you know, what would be the nation in the oct that you see kind of falling out of that conversation? I think on, on Dordas is on the way out. Uh, I think Panama will be back. Uh, I think that Curacao is still on the rise, even though I talk about them a lot and they didn't, they didn't come through this time. And I think Guatemala is getting better. They didn't get as as much better as I thought they would be in the Nations League, but I think their project is really interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah. I get, who do I kick out? I mean, I think El Salvador is going to struggle, you know, especially yeah. if Perez leaves. So I think I think those, you know, the the Honduras El Salvador neighbors maybe making way. Okay. And we've touched so much on CONCACAF men, so I'll hit on the CONCACAF women as that women's championship just happened uh, as we get out of this region. Um, you know, the U.S. women's youth has, you know, vastly changed the way that the U.S. is going to play moving forward, um, gives us kind of hope for the future. I guess kind of coupling that in with the fact that Mexico, they have all this hype around them, didn't make, um, you know, the World Cup in their home country when there was, you know, all this uh, talk of like this new generation of Mexican women coming up and changing this team. What have the U.S. Uh, youth players brought to their team, and why isn't that reflected on the Mexican side as well? And what does that mean for Mexico? Well, I, I think like Mexico it absolutely fell flat, a huge disappointment at this tournament. But I think it might take still a little more time for their success at some of the youth levels. You know, the U20 World Cup uh, just opened in Costa Rica two days ago, this week. Um, Mexico is looking strong. Mexico under Monica Vergara uh, had a fantastic performance um, in the last U- U20 World Cup. The U17s have looked strong. There's some issues right now with um, with, with the allegations of abuse in the U20 team that you know Yonde Luisa, the Federation president, says has, has cleaned up and everything seems to be kind of back to to pulling in the same direction now. But we'll, we'll see. I, I think we're still it's very easy to look, and, and I think we did this with the last uh, World Cup qualification tournament that also saw Mexico miss out as well. It's very easy to say, oh, well, there's a league now, and people are going to games, which is true and great to see. And there's a difference between that and the national team being good. 
Um, and I think it'll take a little bit for Mexico to see the fruits of what they've done at the youth level and trying to develop, you know, girls at that, you know, U15, U17, U20 level. I, I think it might still take a little time. So I think Mexico, it's still that sleeping giant, but they probably wake up in the next cycle because I think there's almost no way you don't, you know, a country like Haiti with no resources, much, much worse abuse situation, uh, terrible, terrible, not, not to compare, um, but like really, really gross things happening with the Federation president, with the referees, officials, with other officials. And despite that, these women have overcome that and have every opportunity to get into the World Cup. So if you make your system even a little better, you should be able to start getting points. It is like mind boggling that they got zero points from their hosting a World Cup qualification uh situation system tournament whatever um it's mind-boggling they didn't do better but they didn't i i think in a few years you'll have mexico among the u.s canada and heck jamaica you know back to back it, it seems like we've got to put them in the conversation as far as like consistent performers in Concacaf, which is great to see so um but yeah, I think like in Central America too, like with the with the advent of kind of the Women's Nations League, with the Women's Girl, uh, Gold Cup taking place, finally, you know, CONCACAF is giving some of these countries that maybe haven't invested, they're making them invest, and I think it'll be good for the whole region. Yeah, and I just want to touch on that that investment and having that outlet and that potential uh, stage for for women and for girls. It's such a it's it's so needed and it's such a, a huge step. You know, culturally, not to get too much into the weeds on, on Latin American culture and everything, but it's it's just historically even more difficult for girls and women um, to be mm-hmm. uh, supported in playing sports and and in general, it's just you know it's a, it's a different culture and it's going to take a little bit to to turn around those thought processes on how to develop girls and keep them supported in, in sports. Um, so yeah, with, might take with the men's bit, side, we're just talking good. about like coaching and player development, but with the women's side, we're talking about like changing the culture, like the actual culture. And that that's for sure going to take longer. Change uh, to the level of changing the way that families view, um, you know, sons and daughters and the potential for, for each one to do, to play sports. Um, that's going to take a little bit, but I, I think you see signs of it coming. Um, so I'm hopeful over the next 10 years or so, we start seeing more of that um, coming through in Latin America. And last but not least, before you uh, before we get you out of here, um, just hit on Dallas because you, you covered that beat uh, extensively and very well uh, in addition to your CONCACAF stuff. So I am interested as Legit has now come in and we touched on that in our transfer window. We talked to your colleague Chris Bills and he was quite knowledgeable on that as well. Um, now that he's in, how do you see that midfield shaping up? We've had some inj- injuries. Cervania has been in and out. As, um, but do you see that kind of surreal, legit pomical being the thing for Dallas moving forward? Or do you think there, there can be some nuance in there? No, I, I think that six will still be platooned if Quinone doesn't start uh, coming back. You know, that's a guy they bought from Argentina last year. He struggled to adapt. Uh, but he adapted pretty well. He's currently injured, which is why Sergio's playing all the, the six minutes. For a while there, they were doing a platoon where it kind of seemed like Quinone was in there and the like need to get gritty and, and you know, kind of like gruff and defend tough games. Uh, but I think that might actually fit Sergio's profile better because he hasn't been effective at all passing. He's been decent at winning the ball, 
decent kind of in positional sense, but then his passing numbers, if you look at them, like just not there. He's, he's not, he's not starting attacks. He's, he's not, not kind of making things happen. Legit should help that. But I think that you're going to see Pomichol and legit kind of lock down those two eight spots. Uh, but I think the six will probably rotate and look like, you know, talking in the off season, I'd love to see Sergio take a huge step forward, but I wouldn't be totally stunned if FCD says we're in the market for a six. So um, I think the midfield for us fans, it'll be really good because I think legit and, and Pomichol will kind of lock down those spots. And I think that one thing that kind of paradoxically I say paradoxically because we thought of Pomichol, I think, as this like winger slash 10 creative attacking player. Uh, but this year he's been more effective defending um, and hasn't been making the runs into the box he needs, hasn't been making the key passes that he needs. And I think that's something he can still bring back into his game, but it hasn't shown up yet. And I think Legette being that player already, kind of being a model of what Pomichol could make his game uh, should be quite helpful. So I think it's good news for the U.S. You know, I wrote a column on the striker a few weeks back just saying, like, it seems like national team fans just want to ask the question, like, should Pomichol be in the national team? And to me, that's just not the question because this is a guy who this is his first season in this role. This is his first season. Last year, he was mostly healthy, but this is the first season he's really had health and felt comfortable. Let the kid get back into the, to the MLS mix before we start anointing him as this national team guy. And uh, I think that if he's you know, doing what he can to learn from Legette. If he's playing well uh, alongside him, no matter who the six is, uh, it should be good news in the long term for the national team. But 2022, no way. Definitely. Andres, any last words before we wrap this thing up? Yeah, just I think that's a good point on, on Paul McCall and just seeing him getting consistent minutes, consistent 90 minutes, uh, week in and week out. I finally, um, after, you know, two years of, of pretty rough Bells has been it's been good to see even if maybe he's not quite playing at the level that he had right before um just having him back in the swing of things bodes well for the future just real last last uh, question on Dallas and in that midfield Cervania and ensembling does legit bringing in coming in basically mean they're on the outs in terms of significant playing time here coming into the stretch run I mean, look, like this weekend, Pomichol probably comes off the bench because he's dealing with a knock. Cervenia's uh, out as well because of some injuries. But I think Nsabalang is a great change piece. You know, he brings a lot of energy. They really like what he's done. He had a weird situation where he was like throwing up on the field in consecutive games and they weren't sure why. They think they've kind of sorted that out. He had a great 45 minutes against the Timbers. Um, so I, I think... Those guys will still compete for playing time, but I do, for Cervania, I do worry about his kind of progression because this is a guy who I think fills a role that we're going to see more as, as MLS academies produce good players. I think you're going to see more and more this type of player where he was too good for North Texas, FC Dallas's development team. So they put him on loan. He, you know, he, he trained with Bayern Munich, but then, you know, he wasn't going to be a Chris Richards or, or, you know, Ricardo Pepe type path where they say this guy's for sure staying in Europe. So he goes on loan in Austria, didn't really like it, didn't really play the position he wanted to play, at least from my, you know, impression. And then he comes back here. But yeah, like you're saying, like, is the path to first team minutes there? I'm not really sure. Um, So I do wonder kind of, look, on a certain level, like (laughs) soccer's a performance-based game and you got to perform. And he's done so sometimes, but also hasn't other times. And so, 
maybe this is, you know, if it's the end of their playing time, then um, hopefully they, they find new spots to play. But I, I, I think both of those guys can still fight for minutes, can still, you know, be in the picture. But of course, anytime you add a player of Legette's caliber at the position, it's going to be a competition. So uh, I think both of those guys will have to learn from him and try and surpass him. But it'll be tough. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting to see how Dallas manages this last run. You know, with uh, six points separating third through, what, 11th? Like, mm-hmm. anything could happen. Uh, yes, no. Do you see them making the playoffs? Yes. Okay, as we do as well. Um, so, John, thank you so, so much for coming on. And we were finally able to get this together. Um, and lastly, as I say with all my guests, you know, you can plug what you uh, do. You know, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Arnold, comma, John, spell out comma, J-O-N. <laughs> Everything is a little complicated in finding me, but hopefully people will, will check it out. Getting CONCACAFT is the newsletter. It's getconcacaf.substack.com, or you can just Google getting CONCACAFT, and then uh, check out the striker where my FC Dallas work appears, and there's coverage of Austin FC and the Dynamo and LAFC and Angel City and Atlanta United and maybe coming to your town too too soon if i didn't just mention it so that's at the striker.com but yeah come hang out let's talk some soccer yeah yeah and i was as i was saying with chris i loved seeing this how the strikers expanded but obviously incorporating your work with Concacaf is the best anywhere so yeah i just really uh, appreciate having your insight uh thank you all so much for listening we'll see you at uh for the normal pod next uh midweek um after this weekend of mls action so until then Enjoy life, enjoy the beautiful game, and we will see you then.